My name is Brian Trias. I'm the family pastor here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it's a joy to get to be with you this morning. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 21. And normally when you're doing a message or you're giving a talk of some kind, you want to have a hook. You want to have something that draws people in at the beginning to let them know what the need is. Why do you need to listen to this message? And so oftentimes you use an illustration or a story or something funny. And Honestly, the, the, the best illustration I have to get us into our topic today is, is really just a story from the text. And so we're going to start in the book of Acts, chapter 21, verse 10. And it starts with, While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So now I've done this three times. I'm going to go for number four. Is anyone in this room named Agabus? Not even like the, the funny hand this time, right? Like, no one, no one's named Agabus. That is a funny name. We're not used to hearing it. And it's one of those names you kind of remember because you don't see it very often. And not only is it a, a kind of an odd name that we read here in verse 10, he's going to do some things at the beginning of verse 11 that's a little strange. You see, in verse 11 it says, In coming to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, I don't exactly know where Paul's belt was. It was like a, probably like a money belt. Was it on him? Was it next to him? Was it in a bag? Where, where was Paul's belt? Didn't find anything as I read. But he took Paul's belt, and then he did something even odder. He bound his own hands and his feet. Agabus is doing some strange things. But his very next line just totally changes what's going on in the situation. You see in verse 11 he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Agabus has a word of the Lord from the pe- for the people. He says, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's no laughing matter. What's going to happen to Paul who's the owner of the belt, is he's going to be bound and delivered, he's going to be imprisoned, and he most likely will end his life. His friends who are hearing it do what good friends should do. They begged him not to go. Verse 12 says this, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, you can go anywhere. You don't have to go there. You can continue your ministry. You can spread the word. You can go out and take this to other places. Just don't go there. Bad things are going to happen to you. And Paul may have let them carry on for a bit, but he stops them in verse 13. He says, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. It's the first recorded country song that we have on record. But what broke Paul's heart was not what he was about to do. It was seeing his friends be crushed at the thought of what was going to happen to him. And he had to stop them and said, Stop pleading with me. You're breaking my heart seeing you suffer, but I know my path. And he concludes in verse 13 saying, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And his friends were convinced in verse 14. They said, after these days, we, or, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And then after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. This isn't the overall question I think we need to wrestle with this morning, but it's going to get us there. Why would Paul lean into suffering? 
why would Paul know what is to come and know what's going on and still follow and walk in obedience? Paul does follow in obedience. He goes to Jerusalem. The rest of chapter 21 gets him there. He meets with the church at Jerusalem. He meets with James. And they talk about the ministry that has gone on. And there is great praise given to the Lord that the kingdom is expanding. They know that Paul is not going to have a very easy time in Jerusalem. So they tell him, to go and purify himself and to pay the way for other brothers who are under vow. And he goes and he does that. But the word says that Jews from Asia came down and made life hard for him. In fact, they tried to kill him. And the Romans who were charged of keeping the peace of Rome came and pulled him out. And they took him to, strangely enough, a safer place, being in a Roman jail. Paul had been removed from people who wanted to kill him, removed from the harshness of the situation. And yet, what did Paul want to do? Romans 21, 39 tells us, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you to permit me to speak to the people. Paul wasn't looking for safety. No, he was willing to lean in and he wanted to go back in front of his accusers and he had a message to tell them. In verse 40, it says, When he had been given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when he was there, there was a great hush. And he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying... That's a pretty small little detail that Luke gives us there, that he addressed them in the Hebrew language. But the common language of the day was Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. But here Paul is standing in front of Jewish accusers, wanting to speak to them in a tongue that was near and dear to their hearts. Paul was wanting to get on their level, mouth to mouth, heart to heart. And he begins his defense in 22.1. He said, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. They were on the edge of their seats, even though they were probably standing. And they were leaned in. Paul starts. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, brought up in this city. In Texas, where I grew up, we had a saying that said, I wasn't born here, but I got here as quickly as I could. (laughs) This is like me saying, I'm not from Topeka, but this is my home. He's saying, this is where I'm from now. And I was educated, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a name that we don't, doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but to them was a highly respected teacher, a Pharisee. They knew him. They respected his education. He was educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I'm one of you. Keeps going. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness 
From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in the bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul was making his way to Damascus to try and change the world. He wanted to rid the world of the way. The world was changed on that day, just not the way that he thought it would be. You see, on that road to Damascus, as Paul made his way there in verse 6, as he drew near about noon, a great light from heaven shone around me and fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul responds to the light. He says, who are you, Lord? I've always thought that was interesting that he gets it right in his response. Who are you, Lord? Something divine is happening here. Something not worldly is happening here. Identify yourself. And he does. Verse 8 tells us, And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I am the risen one. I am the one who was dead and crucified and buried. But I rose to new life and I am here now calling you. But Saul wasn't alone on that day. We get a little clue as to what's going on here in verse 9. It says, Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. This helps us understand what's going on with Paul. Because these other men could see a light, they could see something was going on, but they couldn't understand the reality that Paul or Saul was dealing with. They had not been given eyes to see, they had not been given ears to understand It was not their time. Because in verse 10, the Lord shows himself to Paul. It says, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? Paul responds with the question that I think we need to be asking ourselves today. What shall I do, Lord? And his response to him is this. Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now, I've emboldened the word appointed. It's the word I want you to see in the text. This wasn't what Paul chose. This wasn't the adventure that he got up and thought he wanted to do on this day. No, Paul was appointed on this day to have eyes to see and ears to hear from the Savior. Paul had two appointments in his life, and this one was the first, to meet Jesus. In verse 11, it says, And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, my sight, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you. There's that word again. Paul had a date with destiny on this day. And it was for him to meet Jesus. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
This is the response to the question, what shall I do, Lord? I believe that there are people in this room who do not know Jesus. They might know about him. They might be able to tell me stories about him, but they have not met him. And I have been praying that you would have eyes to see and ears to hear that this day that you would have an appointment to meet your Savior. Because the first and most important appointment you have in your life is to meet Jesus. What shall I do, Lord? You shall know him and love him and trust him and follow him. This was the first appointment that Paul had. We have a second appointment that we want to discover and look at this morning. To do so, I want to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 22 is the second telling of Paul's conversion story. Acts chapter 9 is the original one. And there are two people that had appointments on that day. The first was the man we've already mentioned. His name's Ananias. In Acts chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord! Can you imagine how happy he was? He has a vision from the Lord. He's about to do something that the Lord has asked him to do. Here I am. Those are expectant words throughout Scripture. And the Lord gives him his appointment. He says, there's a man, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for this man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. And Ananias says, you got the wrong guy. This is a hard mission. God, let me tell you about this man, Saul. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord has a one-word response for Ananias. He says, go. The rest of the words that he says are for the benefit of Saul, but for Ananias, he says, go. This is your appointment. This is your calling. This is what I have for you to do. You need to let him know that he is a chosen instrument. There are those words again. If you look throughout the book of Acts, you will see calling, chosen, appointment over and over again. Paul, Saul is going to be my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings children of Israel. And verse 16 is the kicker. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is the second appointment that Paul had. Paul had a date with suffering as he took the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. So what about for us? What is our second appointment? Well, to answer this question, I want you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. I promise this is the last time I will have you flipping this morning. But I believe 2 Timothy 4 has something to say to us about what our second appointment is. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last recorded words of Paul that we had, uh, we have. Paul was 
almost to the end of his life, and he's looking back at Timothy, his son in the faith. He's giving him instruction. He is giving him wisdom to live on and minister in. And he has some charges for Timothy. These are the words of a dying man. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you by the very ones that we serve, who they are and what they will do to go out and accomplish what you have been called to do, young Timothy. And in verse 2 he says, Preach the word. Your job is to take the words of the Lord and to take them to the people. Be ready in season and out of season. When it is comfortable, when it is not. When it is convenient, when it is not. Take the words out. You are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. There are some people through Scripture you're going to have to bring down a peg and some that you're going to have to elevate, but you're going to use the Word of God to instruct and give them what they need. It says, with complete patience and teaching, preach the Word. I think about my son when he was in kindergarten and how much patience his kindergarten teacher had to have with him as he is trying to learn the ropes of school. And she has so much wisdom to give, but so much of him is not ready to understand. I imagine it is not that much different for senior teachers and college professors as well. But when you're teaching, you have to do it with patience because not everyone is ready to hear what needs to be said. Verse 3 and 4 will illustrate this. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the context to which Paul is instructing Timothy, which he is ministering in. It doesn't sound that much different than now, though, does it? People have tired of sound teaching. They have tired of sound doctrine. When they hear something they don't like, they move away and find someone who Scripture says will tickle their ears. Someone who will give them what they want. They will label what they don't like and they will find what they want and they will build a God in their own image. This is the context in which Timothy was called to minister. It is the context in which we are called to minister as well. And in verse 5, he begins to charge Timothy. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, be clear-minded, singular-focused on the things that matter. And then he says, endure suffering. You have my example. You have seen what I have walked through as you have seen me walk in my path. It's going to be hard. It's not always going to be easy, but you have a call. He then tells him to do the work of an evangelist. There are people out there who do not know who I am and they do not care, but they need to know me. Let them know who I am. And then he has one final command that I think is where we're going to drop the anchor for today. He tells Timothy to fulfill 
your ministry. Timothy, you have been gifted and equipped to do all sorts of things. Use everything that I have poured into you, everything everyone else has poured into you, everything the Lord has given you, and do what only you can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. And our answer today for our second appointment to the question, what shall I do, Lord? The answer is to fulfill your ministry. Now that seems a little vague and seems a little off, and so let's talk about fulfill your ministry a little bit. I don't think anyone has a problem with the word fulfill. right? We like to be successful. We like to achieve things. We like to move balls forward. We want to be a part of the winning team. And so we like to fulfill things. I don't think anyone who knows the person of Jesus has a problem with the word ministry. We know that as pastors, we are called to equip the people for the work of the ministry, and we want the kingdom of God to expand. We want ministry to happen. That's a good thing. We have a problem sometimes with the words, your. What does it mean that I have ministry? What is the ministry that I have? And oftentimes, we get sucked up into playing the comparison game. Well, if I could just minister in this environment, or if I just had these gifts over here, if I could look like them or sound like them, then I could actually do great ministry. And I know that people suffer with this because I suffer with this. I look at some of my really, really good friends. I I look at a guy like Aaron Catlin who's a dear, dear brother to me and who was a part of this church for years and years. And he picked up his family and he moved halfway across the world. He is living in a context that is not his own, having to learn the culture and the language and the food and assimilate his family into an extremely different environment. And he is fighting the good fight and he is suffering for the gospel in a place that I have never been. And I can say, am I doing enough? And then I remember that's Aaron and Jessica's ministry. It's not my ministry. I think about my friend who was here last month, Radu Oprea, pastor of Bethany Baptist Church in Bucharest, Romania. And he leaves his house almost every day before the sun rises, gets home well after it sets. He puts in all day doing the work of the ministry. He preaches and teaches. He does the funerals and the weddings. He has to do the the training and the equipping. He teaches the youth and the children. Sometimes he leads worship. He has to do it all. He has no staff. He has no team. He is faithfully shepherding a group of 200 sheep that look to him for leadership and guidance. And he is pouring out his life over there. And I say, am I doing enough? And I have to remember, that's not my ministry. That's Radu's ministry. So I look at what, what is my ministry? And so I'm going to go personal here just for a second. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells me what my first ministry is. Paul says that when I am attached, when I am married, that my first ministry is my wife. I have been delightfully attached for almost 15 years now. And I am called to love her as Christ loves the church and willingly gave himself up for her. Do I do that perfectly? Absolutely not. But that is my first and greatest ministry. 
my second ministry are these three little rugrats that run around my house. They're eight and they're five and they're three. And they take all of my energy almost all the time. But I have been given a command. I am called to train them up in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. I am told to talk about how God is my one and only and the greatest love of my life with them when I am on the way and when I sit down, when I get up and when I leave. These are the things that I'm supposed to do with them because it is what matters most for them. That is my second ministry that God has given me. My third ministry is here. You see, 10 years ago, this, you guys, my church family, took a chance on a 25-year-old snot-nosed seminary student who thought he knew a whole lot more than he did. And you have brought him in here to be one of you, to grow with you, to live with you, to cry and laugh with you, to serve with you and love you. And for 10 years, I have counted it one of the greatest privileges of my life to get to pour myself out here. This is my home. I wake up every day thinking about how we can disciple and train and equip the families of this church. I'm all in. That's my ministry. What is your ministry. I'm guessing you guys are going to go back to some sort of house, apartment, some place where you live. The people in there are your first ministry. If you are a husband, you are called to love your wife. If you are a wife, you are called to respect your husband. If you have rugrats, you are called to train them in the way that they should go. That is your ministry. If you are here and you're one of the rugrats, you are called to honor and cherish and love and respect your parents, obeying them. And you say, well, you don't know my family. You don't know the circumstances. I say, Scripture doesn't give us an out. This is our ministry. And if you are here and you are unattached, Paul says you are blessed because you can take the kingdom farther than us attached folk can. We have a ministry to fulfill in the seasons we find ourselves. But not only do we have ministries in our households, we have ministries outside the walls of where we live. And you have been placed on teams and schools. You have been placed in communities and workplaces. You have been given passions for areas and things that I don't have. You have gifts and abilities and talents and resources and things that Almighty God has blessed and poured into you so that you can fulfill your ministry. Whatever that ministry is, find it and do it. Give your all to it. If you have stopped serving in the past and you want to serve now, get back on the horse. If you have not started serving, if you are just thinking about yourself, start pouring your life out for the only thing that matters. Fulfill your ministry. Paul wasn't done with Timothy. You see, Paul gets to the place where he says, fulfill your ministry. And then he goes back to talking about himself. 
He says, I understand that I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul understands that he is at the end, that a Roman headsman is about to come and take his head. And he can look back on what he has done and he can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Everything that God has poured into me, I have poured out for the sake of my Lord. Paul can look at Timothy and say, I have fulfilled my ministry. You do the same. Paul did meet his end. He was martyred in Rome. And I have a thought about what his meeting with his master looked like. See, in the Gospels, Jesus tells a story about the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, the master is described as a hard man. He has a lot of expectation for his servants and he distributes to his servants different levels of talents. And to one of them, he was given five. And that one who had five went out and invested it and and made it earn money and brought it back. And he had five more and he stood before his master. And he said, Master, here are the five talents that you gave me and here are the five that I made from it. He lays them at the feet of the master. I can only imagine the smile on the master's face as he looks at Paul. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I will entrust you with a lot. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't know about you. Those are the words that I want to hear. There's nothing that this world has to offer. Money, fame, position, power, reputation. There is nothing that that compares with one day fulfilling our ministry and getting to stand before our Savior and saying, I have fulfilled my ministry. Here is everything that is yours. And to hear the Master say, well done my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am, I am so thankful for the ministry that you had through Paul. Father, I am, I am so thankful to read of how he leaned into suffering, how he was willing to give up everything because he knew that you had appointed him for a purpose. Father, and he fulfilled his purpose. He fulfilled his ministry. Father, we sit here this morning, March 2016, in Topeka, Kansas, and you have appointments for us. Father, I pray if people need to meet you this morning, that you would stir in their hearts, not let them rest until they talk to someone about what it means to follow you. Father, I pray that for those who have had that appointment of meeting Jesus, that we would now answer the call for the second one, that we would fulfill our ministry, that we would go wherever you would have us go, that we would do whatever you would have us do for your sake, for your glory, and for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen.